Hello, welcome back to our study of the book of Revelation. We're so glad you could join us for now what I think is our 13th lesson, if I'm not mistaken, and we're in chapter 12 of Revelation. Uh, probably one of my favorite chapters of the book, um, and, and typically one of the favorites of most people who studied it, although it is one that is a challenging one. In fact, if and I say I feel like I say this every time. If you were to look at at what a lot of scholars have written, a lot of the books out there, um, you're going to find a lot of different opinions about chapter twelve. Uh, and and I will tell you up front what I'm going to share with you in terms of the interpretation of chapter twelve is my opinion. Uh, it does differ with some uh, other scholars. I'm not a scholar. Uh, I don't consider myself one, but it will differ maybe from what you might read elsewhere. And those people will disagree with one another too, and that's okay. So uh, you're free to uh, study and research and, and come to your own conclusions on it. But uh, I'm going to share with you what I feel chapter 12 is telling us, and I think it fits in well with the theme of Revelation, which is uh, the worship of Jesus Christ as the source of our victory. So let's dig in then, chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Um, there, there are a lot of, and in fact, if, if you look at some of your translations, some versions of the Bible where they have chapter headings or, or paragraph headings, this will, will explicitly say that the, the woman is Israel, uh, the nation of Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Um, I, I, that, that would not be how I see it. I think that's a fine interpretation. I think that's a, a fine way to look at it. Uh, I see it a little more direct. Uh, I see Jesus in this a little more directly. And of course, we're going to see Jesus appear in, in this vision and in this scene. But, um, I think about, and this time of year, it, it, as you're watching this, I don't know when you're watching it, but as it's being recorded, we're just about a week and a half out from Christmas. Uh, and it's a time when, when uh, people tend to uh, think about Jesus. People of faith like to celebrate Jesus at Christmas and his birth. Um, I know not everyone does that. I've, I've had friends who um, uh, celebrate Christmas. I was raised celebrating Christmas, but we didn't celebrate it as a religious holiday. Uh, we celebrate it more as a secular thing. Um, and, and that there's a lot of history as to why that is because certain denominations, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, do celebrate that. And historically, Protestant movements have tried to run away from Catholicism as a reaction. And it's probably led to a little bit of misunderstanding of some things. I even know people whose families went so far as they wouldn't celebrate Christmas at all because they thought it was a, a, a plot by the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church, and they just didn't participate. They didn't get gifts. They didn't give gifts. They didn't say Merry Christmas. They just, um, to, to a point that may be abusive. But this time of year, we do see images of Christ around us as people celebrate Christmas. Uh, down the street from our house, there's a, a nativity scene that a family always puts out right on the corner of one of the major streets in town. Um, last year we had a pretty snowy winter and the plows come through and they kick that stuff up, uh, off the curb and into the yard and pile it up. And we drove by one day and, and I kind of exclaimed in a almost sarcastic way, oh no, they, they buried Jesus. And my son, uh, 
very astutely and very with great wit said, don't worry, Dad, in a few days he'll rise again. Um, I thought that was funny. Preacher's kids sometimes have wicked senses of humor, and that's good. But we think about Christmas this time of year, and you see those nativity scenes, right? You see Joseph and Mary. <clears throat> you see um, the three wise men. Maybe there's some animals there and the baby Jesus. There's a lot of pieces missing from that story. That's how we imagine the scene. But we talk about the wise men. There probably weren't just three of them. And they weren't there when Jesus was an infant. They were likely there when he was closer to two years old. We know that because Herod, finding out about them, issued an edict of the murder of all children um, that age and younger, based upon the fact that these men had been traveling for quite some time, and there were probably more than three. The only thing that indicates three is the number of gifts they brought. So there are a lot of things missing from that scene as we traditionally see it. Well, guess what else is missing? What comes up in, in verse 3 here. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven uh, diadems. <clears throat> and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. I believe this is Mary and Jesus about to give birth to Jesus. Now, we don't see the dragon in the nativity scene because the dragon, Satan, and he'll be called Satan or the devil here later, um, because Satan is moving. There are There is an invisible war that's been going on from the beginning. We can't see it. It exists on a different plane, in a different reality. And Revelation is a peek behind the curtain. So what do we have here? If we have Mary preparing to give birth to Jesus. We have to know some history about, about Satan and about, um, we have to, to understand the history of Satan and, and God and, and of mankind. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, we have to piece some of that together. It's not explicitly given to us. So we piece some of that together um, from places like Isaiah and Ezekiel, where it talks about Satan and his time as an angel serving in heaven um, and then being cast down and some of what's behind that. The best we can tell, uh, Lucifer or Satan or the devil or whatever we call him was an angel. Uh, not the strongest of angels, probably not the weakest, but he knew what God's plan was for man. He knew what God was preparing to do and he didn't like it. He didn't think we were worth it. He still doesn't. The oldest book in scripture most likely is the book of Job as far as when it was written, probably the earliest. And in that story, we see an image of Satan walking in and out of the, the throne room of God, the conference of God, um, and talking to him and reasoning with him about man. And Satan's view of mankind is the only reason they love you is you take care of them. You do nice things for them. But the minute you start to pull back and remove those blessings, they will quit you like a bad habit. And they make a wager on it. They make a bet on it. And Satan goes after Job, and he begins working his lies on him. And ultimately, Job is faithful to God, and he's restored. <coughs> Excuse me. But that gives us a glimpse into where Satan's thinking was with God's plan. 
And when you add to that the verses in Ezekiel and Isaiah, you see an image of a, an angel who is angry with God's plan and leads a rebellion wanting to take God's place, wanting that job for himself. And he leads a rebellion, but he loses. And he's cast out of heaven along with the other angels that were with him. Um, it says about a third, and we know because we've studied Revelation, a third doesn't literally mean 33.3%. It means a great number. It means a great number of them. So Satan won some to his side and then was cast out of heaven. And uh, we see an image of him being chained up, being held back, um, because he's not the strongest angel. There are angels that are sh shown to be stronger than him. There are powers that are stronger than Satan, and yet he remains powerful and influential. We'll talk a little more about that invisible war that's going on that we don't see but exists. Now again, we need to talk about time because we view time linearly. Uh, time does not exist that way with God. Uh, it, we see Jesus himself. I think it's in the book of Luke. He says, I saw Satan uh, cast out of heaven or cast down. Um, did, was he speaking in past tense um, or was it something presently that he was seeing or was he talking, was Satan's rebellion con contemporaneously with the time of Christ was it prior to? Time doesn't work the same way with God. So I don't know. But we do know, or we think we know, that Satan was an angel. He was cast out of heaven for leading a rebellion to take God's place. And why? Because he doesn't like us. Because he's jealous of the love that God has for us. And he doesn't think we're worth it. And he's trying to convince God and us of that fact. that We're not worth what he's willing to do. And so here we have the image of the red dragon, which we'll call Satan later on in the passage, who's waiting to devour this child that's being born, this Christ, this Savior. God is coming into the world, and Satan is going to crush him. He's going to destroy him. That's his plan. So what happens? <clears throat> Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So uh, it doesn't work out. God brings the child up to be with him before Satan can do what he plans to do. And, and by the way, look at history. Let's look at the Old Testament. If you follow the story of the Old Testament, what is it? It's a chess match between God and Satan. Move and counter move. God moves in a particular way. Satan counterattacks. God moves again, and Satan makes a counter move, all to try and, and, and destroy God's people, get them to buy into the lie, bring them away from God, and God moves to bring them closer. Through uh, the flood, through the old, well, go back to the garden, for goodness sake. Uh, the, we have the garden, God moving to place people on this earth, Satan counter moving with his temptation, with the eating of the fruit from the forbidden tree. And then God moves again. They're cast out of the garden, but he continues to move. He's still present. And then we have the flood, and then you have the law of Moses and the captivity. I mean, every you can get even more detailed than that. It's move and counter move. And now God's greatest move, the birth of Christ and his ministry and his crucifixion to defeat death and to defeat sin, move and counter move. And here Satan is ready. He's going to He's going to try and get rid of this object of God's plan, but he fails. It doesn't work. 
because he's not powerful enough. Look at verse 7. And then <clears throat> there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. So here we have, now they're being kicked out of heaven here after the birth of Christ. But again, time doesn't move in a linear fashion the way we as humans understand and experience it, okay? It's different in heaven. It's different with God. Things are happening all at the same time and all at different times and in different orders all the time. And if you can understand that, uh, you've got a leg up over me, okay? I understand these things because very smart people have taught them to me. But there's no place for them in heaven. <clears throat> Verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser. It's an important word. We're going to come back to it. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time, a very limited time for him to destroy us. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness and to her place, and uh, where she was nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. What does that mean? Times, time, times, and half a time. Um, we're dealing in numbers, we're dealing in symbols and signs, and for them, in their context, the audience hearing this, they understood that was, that was for a period of time. It's like the number three and a half, and we talked about that. Um, it's for a, a, the period of time, a, a significant portion of time, uh, not a complete amount of time. Not all the time, but the time that, that was needed. Um, from the presence of the serpent. Okay, verse 15. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the rivers which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. I'm going to read verse thir uh, chapter 13, verse 1, because it really belongs with chapter 12, okay? Uh, the imperfection of chapter divisions. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. He's standing there still working, still waiting, still after us. But I want to go back to this idea of Satan as an accuser, and that's what the name means. He's a tattletale, right? That's what it means. He, um, th this still exists in Semitic culture, Middle Eastern culture. If you look at some of the regimes of the Middle East, the totalitarian regimes, the authoritarian regimes, they're out to get the people that would dissent with the government. See, we have the beauty of the First Amendment. We get to say we think so-and-so is terrible at their job and, and, and we're free to do it. No danger, no repercussions. Um, but not true in places like uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan formerly and now presently, as they are under Taliban rule. And those who would speak out or those who might say things that were 
unkind about the ruling class, someone might be listening and someone to gain favor might tell on you. And they are called a shatan, um, uh, Satan. It's, it's a version of the word Satan. It means accuser. And that's what Satan is. We think of him as a tempter. We think of him as the embodiment of evil. We think of him as making bad things happen, all these. But what is he really? He's the voice that stands before the throne of God and says, they don't really love you. They're not worth what you do. He's the one that whispers in your ear and says, you, you don't, you're, not, you're not good enough for God. He doesn't really love you. He's holding back from you. Your sin will prevent you. You're not good enough. You're dirty. You're ugly. He is the accuser. He is the one that is pointing out our failures, pointing out the ways we trip up and mess up. And you know we do this too. Um, in Christianity, in faith, there's a whole lot of arguing that goes on. Um, there's a whole lot of arguing about um, the way we do certain things, certain doctrines, certain beliefs. And there are more forceful elements in Christianity that think it's their job that it pleases God for them to call that sort of thing out. Do you know that we're not ever commanded to do that in that way? Now, we stand for truth and we defend the gospel, but our job is not to police the doctrine of others. Our job is to understand the gospel and live it the best we can and understand scripture and embody that the best we can, not to accuse others. Because when we accuse, we're doing Satan's job for him. We're part of Team Satan when we do that. Here we have the image, the vision of what effectively is God's plan for earth and for his people. And Satan is always moving to try and counteract that. He did it all throughout history in the Old Testament. He did it with the birth of Christ. He did it with Christ's ministry. He did it in Christ's death. And every time God has been victorious and eventually Satan is bound and he is cast out and he is doing everything he can, even to this day, standing on the seashore, waiting to devour us, God's people, waiting to tear us away and destroy us and keep us from our, our God. But God has already won the battle. We rejoice. That's what's happening. There's, there's worship. This voice from heaven in verse 10, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. Our accuser's been cast down. Satan's been defeated. We win and we worship. A beautiful chapter and a beautiful story and a beautiful insight into the war that goes on and has gone on and continues to go on for the fate of the world. But Satan's not strong enough. He's already lost. He pushed too far. And we win because God loves us. And in turn... We love one another. We don't join Team Satan. We don't accuse. That's his job. God's job is to love, and we're going to do like him. We're going to look like our father. All right, we'll hit the rest of chapter 13 next time. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll hope to see you then.